You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. All right, so as some of you know, um, probably saw on social media this week that our speaker who was going to be here today um, had to cancel last minute because of a family emergency. But I've got really good news. Who we got instead is by no means second best. This is Rima Zaman, everybody. Rima, come on down. Uh, you just happen to be in town. Uh, we've got a mic here for you. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, my hands are full at the moment. Uh, Rima just happened to be in town. Um, we don't. We didn't know each other prior to Wednesday or Thursday this week. Yep. I think that's true. Is this, is this on? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, Andre Henry, who's a mutual friend of ours, uh, put us uh, put us in touch with each other. I contacted Andre as soon as I found out um, our, our speaker for this Sunday um, had to cancel because of a family emergency. I reached out to Andre. Some of you know him, uh, and was like, "You got to help me find somebody." He did immediately. Uh, he said, I think I have somebody, let me talk with her. The fact that she's in town and available is remarkable. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so glad you could make it. It's an honor. Thank you for welcoming me oh. into your community. Our, our pleasure, and let me give you a proper introduction here. Um, Rima Zaman is an award-winning writer, speaker, actress, and author of the critically acclaimed memoir, I Am Yours, and that is going to be, we have a picture, I think, of the book that will be up on the screen at some point here uh, this morning. Yeah, cool. I don't know who's up there. Hey, uh, Aiden, is somebody up there running the computer? Oh, Bob's got it. He's running it remotely. You can do that from your phone right there? Wow, there it is. Thank Beautiful. You, <laughs> Rima's like, thank you, Bob. Very cool. <laughs> this is available Amazon, find Barnes and Noble. Everywhere. That's Barnes and Nobles, um, every bookstore. The last bookstore downtown. I had my LA launch was at the last book bookstore um, in February. Tremendous. Then, yeah. Awesome. That's a cool place too, right? It is. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's a huge space. Um, yeah, three floors. Anyway. Yeah, 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 very cool. Um, now this book, I Am Yours, has been adopted into the curriculum of several high schools through an innovation grant from the Oregon Board of Education. Rima's work has appeared in Vogue, Ms., The Guardian, Salon, Shape, and elsewhere. She was the 2018 Oregon Literary Arts Writer of Color Fellow and is currently partnering with the International Rescue Community, Committee and Girls Incorporated to serve crucial causes and empower the next generation of leaders. My gosh, you've got a lot going on. She, she is a sought after speaker on feminist and women's issues, born in Bangladesh, raised in Thailand. Uh, you currently live in Oregon. Welcome, Rima. Thank you Thank so much you, for being Aaron. here. Yeah. Thank you. Now the format of today's uh, Today's time together, per her request, is going to be that of an interview, kind of a dialogue. Um, I've had a chance to do my homework in the last four days, a little bit. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm fluent in, in your work, but I familiarize myself with it. And so I've got some prepared questions, but we'll see where it goes. And uh, we'll always have a, a proper time of, of Q&A at the end. In fact, what we'll do is, um, 
I'll kind of throughout open it up and say, does anybody have a question about that or want to respond or reflect on what she just said? So we'll have it as hopefully kind of a, a dialogue with everybody here since we're such a small community. Um, so let's, let me begin by asking you this. Um, a lot of people here probably don't know your work. Uh, they know from my intro that you were born in Bangladesh and, and raised in Thailand. You, you moved here to the United States when you were 18, correct? When I was 18 for college. So I moved, um, I came here to, um, to New York and I was in upstate New York for Skidmore College and I was a women's studies theater double major with a minor in religious studies, actually. A minor in religious studies. Mm -hmm. I forgot that in our phone conversation. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Well, it's very appropriate that you're here today. It is. This, is. this is a place where religious studies can be put to work. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a big part of my writing, which is using uh, revolutionary love, empathy, and forgiveness to heal from trauma. Yeah. And I'm yours delves into that a lot. And I, I think in order to truly travel the arc of the healing journey, it has to, you know this, it's, we begin with considering grace, yeah. you know, and, and feeling grace for ourselves as well as those, specifically those who have wounded us or been part of our trauma. Yeah, and so please talk more about your story, your background, um, if I may, your trauma and how that has informed your work. We, we need some, some more background and, and who you are, where you come from, and right. why you do what you do. Well, I feel like any human being, regardless of what gender, ethnicity, race, or religion we're from, or that we identify with, I feel to live in this world is already traumatizing. Yeah. Um, where, you know, every single culture, and I've had the privilege of being part of so many different countries and cultures, there is still so much work to do in terms of um, giving our children the nourishment they need, right? And so, um, so in a nutshell, I mean, I was born in Bangladesh and raised in Thailand and Hawaii. I was in Hawaii for four years. My, my father was in graduate school there. And I was raised in Thailand from the time I was six, and once a year we would return home to visit family in Bangladesh. And when I was 11 years old, a cousin 20 years my senior, he tried to molest me. And I remember being able to get away from him because I had been given stories from other cousins in my family of the things he had done to them. So wow. I had been warned and prepared because there is always a whisper network in nearly, you know, I. I have the blessing of now being in conversation, in, in really intimate conversation with lots of people traveling the globe, and there's always a whisper network in any family that has a trauma. And so I um, strangely was equipped to escape, and I took that story, and I reported him, as well as the things he had done to others, to the patriarch in my family, my father. Mm. And his response was, boys will be boys, and that this happens. And I remember considering whether or not I could go to my mother, but by, the, by age 11, I already knew that he, she wasn't in a place to raise her voice and yeah. take any action on my behalf anyway. Uh, what is a silenced woman to do? If she has no voice, how is she supposed to speak up for her children? And so I remember just sitting there and realizing, oh, this isn't as simple as being told, do not talk. The silencing of my story and the silencing of my voice was almost um, a necessary prong in allowing the status quo to keep milling about. And I realized that, and of course I didn't have the lexicon back then, but 
abuse culture thrives on silence culture, and it thrives on the silencing of women's and children's stories in particular. And, but back then at 11, the, the three things I knew were Papa won't speak, Mama can't, so it is up to me to break this trauma loop and become the first generation of, some, of people who do speak. So I realized people were unwilling or unable to speak because of their fears, of their wounds, of their traumas probably. Yeah. And it, it was the first time that I really understood that if not me, then who? And that was my genesis moment. And it definitely was an enormous factor in how I shaped my academic studies and my personality from then on. I was an angry feminist all throughout high school. And so now that I get to work with so many high school teachers and students, you know, I, I tell my teachers, I promise if you have an angry feminist or an angry kid, there's a story underneath the yeah. story. Anger is always the side effect of pain. Yeah. That's on the second page of I Am Yours, um, where I'm grappling with all of this unspoken anger that I'm, I've been sitting on for decades. And I say, you know, what I know is anger is always the side effect of pain. And when we are in pain, we need love. And that shaped my work as an artist, as a speaker, as a feminist thinker, and as an author. Uh, because things kept on happening. In high school, I was stalked by a teacher in my uh, private school. And that story was again, I reported it to the admin and it was silence. So I just took note of yet another factor in institutionalized um, you know, education systems. And then I graduated high school and of course I was a women's studies major. How can you not be when you're sitting on all of these anecdotes? <laughs> And, um, and one reason why I was a religious studies minor is because I had so much anger inside of me. And I wanted to go through education to really understand what part of my anger is based on fiction mm. and the, the spectacle of so many religions that, that media shows. You know, am I actually angry at Islam? You know, that was the, the religion I was raised around. or Am I angry at some people who twist that to hurt others? You know, and I knew that I, there, I had to be more responsible for the thoughts I was having, especially as a, you know, an 18-year-old radical, you know. And so that was my entire, that's my educational background and childhood. And then um, in my mid-20s, I, I moved to Manhattan after graduating to work as an actress and a model. And then in my mid-twenties, I found myself in an abusive marriage of my own because I hadn't paused to heal any of the trauma. And I just recreated a replica of the silence and the chaos that I knew so well as being home. And it was inside that marriage that I started to write. Mm. Um, initially, to keep an account of what he was saying to me, um, a large part of any abusive relationship, whether it's with a partner or family member, is gaslighting. And I took to the page to hold himself and myself accountable of the things that were happening. Yeah. And then could, could you define gaslighting for those who might not right. be familiar? So gaslighting is when someone takes your words or actions and weaponizes them, twists them to make you feel like you are crazy or stupid. 
And so, um, and then they'll, you know, if you say, you know, well, you said this yesterday, you know, how are you changing your mind today? And then they will say, well, that didn't happen. That's a figment of your imagination. And so I started noticing the same behavioral and verbal pattern that in, in my then husband that I um, would see in my father mm. and the ma manipulation tactics. And so I started just journaling everything to keep myself sane and to have a track record of what he was saying and what I was saying and what was happening. And it was as I was writing, I, um, I started noticing that all of the things that had ever happened to me and that people had looked away from and all of the things that were happening to me and he kept on denying his guilt or uh, that he was being cruel, I realized there was no need for me to feel shame, that I, was never, I had never been at fault and I wasn't at fault in the present or in the past and that was an enormous aha moment for me. And Basically, in short, by writing, I started releasing the shame and the feeling of fault and blame that I had always had as a teenage girl and a child. And I started regaining the courage in my voice, or uh, the courage in my voice to begin with that I'd never really had. Because I think when people shame you or, and say that you are partly to blame for the trauma or the abuses you have been through, that just chips away at our self-esteem. And so by writing, I healed the shame, and I regained self-esteem, and I started saying no to him. And I kept saying no until he evicted me from our home. Wow. And I had $60 and my laptop. And I couch hopped for a while, and I realized that since writing those in initial essays had done so much for me to give me self-forgiveness, self-love, and self-esteem, I felt I had a responsibility to develop those scribblings into a memoir mm. in hope that the book could be a manual for self-love and courage for others who have been through similar traumas. As well as, a, so it's a love letter for any survivor of trauma, as well as a call to action and empathy for those who wish to be allies in our lives. Yeah. And you have it here. Did you want to read an excerpt? Uh, I can. Yeah, I yeah. would love. I would love for you sure. to do that. I know that you wanted to. Is now an appropriate time? Do you feel okay? Cool. Cool. It's always an appropriate. It's time always to an appropriate time to read from you. Yeah. Um, cool. So this is actually. Um, yeah, you'll you'll understand where when it is. The subway lurches and groans. I stand, swaying with its rhythm, nursing a paper cup of coffee like a broken wing. I swallow my coffee quickly, scorching my throat. That's me, a tongue perpetually burnt. I've been babysitting more, and the week is generally divided as three days living with the family I babysit for, and four days with my husband. It's Monday. He is miles away. I love the subway. It's a chance to be alone while with others. It is soothing to feel like I'm part of something bigger. Even though the togetherness is sweaty, smelly, messy, uncomfortable, it is all the more human. We need these reminders of our oneness, interdependency, impact. I'm reminded I can always give someone my seat, 
I can share or abuse space. I can grimace, avert my eyes, or smile. Today, as always, I have my journal. During these years in my marriage, I've written my thoughts less than any other period of my life. And I keep breaking my habit of logging daily gratitude lists. As with nearly all my qualities, my husband has grown to resent this habit that he once admired. So I skip days and wait to write my thanks on the sly, as if gratitude were my clandestine lover. I cherish this time on the subway for exactly that sort of thing, to be. I've started carrying another journal as well, a moleskin notebook I use for love notes for other people, friends, acquaintances at auditions, and mostly strangers on the subway. Some notes I have pre-written, ready to tear and pass on. Others I'll write from a spontaneous feeling off a person's expression. The note will say something like, it will be okay, own your voice, or you are the spine of your life, stand tall, or thank you for being you. At times, all I write is, I promise you are loved. I look around the subway car. There are few here who could use a note. My pen gets busy. I don't know anyone's details. I don't know what happened, how long ago, or if it's happening right now. But I can read emotion, especially pain. I can tell if something hurts. Like now, standing by the far window is a woman who looks like she's being eaten from the inside. Something or someone is atrophying her spirit. Shaken and tired, she's trying now to maintain her balance through the roar of the subway mouth. I deliver her love note like a crumpled valentine from a clumsy, not-so-sly admirer. I try to time it so she gets it right before her stop. Sometimes this works, and the person opens it before disembarking. Sometimes they tear up. Sometimes they mouth, thank you. You too. It takes her a few seconds to realize what has happened. She isn't able to open her note until she's on the other side of the doors, on the subway platform. The doors slide closed. She reads it. She looks at me through the glass as the subway jerks, readying to move. She places the opened note on her heart, like a rose pressed inside a book for safekeeping. She smiles. The subway moves on. Sometimes, a scrap of sentences is the match that lights the flame. If I ever write a book, it will be to give all of us more than a hurried line of love. Thank you, that was beautiful. Yeah, great stuff, yeah. Um, you talk a lot about silence culture. And um, what is silence culture? <laughs> Let's talk about that. Right, silence culture is a necessary prong of any kind of toxic power structure. 
So silence culture can be as big as censorship in the media. Mm -hmm. um, it can also be as subtle and even more insidious as a parent minimizing a child's pain. And it's everything in between. Yeah, yeah I know that um, a lot of us here <clears throat> would define some of our trauma as being, um, what would we call it, religious trauma syndrome. Is it, or Andrew, what, what's the term? Is that it? RTS, religious trauma syndrome. And a lot of us grew up in traditions where, especially for those of us um, who are women, um, where you were to be silent. You were, the, the criticism and questions was not accepted. Doubt was not. Any, any questioning of the power structures was not permitted. And especially if you were a woman, mm -hmm. um, questioning male authority in the church, questioning um, male authority in the home right. was absolutely not allowed. Um, your experience was, you grew up in a, in an Islam, in a Muslim tradition, right? Uh, well, until about age six. And I think culturally we were Muslim, mm -hmm. but we never really practiced. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so my, my mother and father, they're scholars. And so the, the one way I could always get their attention is, and I think this is why I became a wordsmith, is if I posed an argument to them or a debate, I would be able to get their attention and we could have an adult conversation, even as a child, and, um, and I could get them to hear me. And so when I was six years old, um, I remember my family, as, and this is in the book, we went to uh, the mosque for Ramadan and I have a younger brother I have two younger brothers, but when I was six, there was only one of them. Um, my brother's four years younger than me, and he's my best friend, and it was my job to take care of him, as is the job of most older siblings, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and we went to the mosque, and it was the first time that we were physically separated, and the, the men and the boys were to sit in the front of the mosque, and the women and the girls were to sit in the back, separated by a curtain, and I put up a fit. I said, this does not make sense. And I demanded for my parents to explain it to me, the logic behind that. And they couldn't come up with a logic that would satisfy me or them. And so we stopped going to the mosque. And we practiced faith and spirituality in our own way, um, just kindness, love, empathy. However, I mean, I did grow up around a lot of silencing of yeah. certain stories or anecdotes or um, realizations that would threaten my father's power and, in the, and domain in the home. Right, because when you were 11 and your cousin attempted to assault you, right. you went to your father and his response was, Boys, it boys, it happens. Boys will be boys. Right. And I remember you telling me that he kind of curled his lip a little bit and looked at you with disgust, like, uh, like why are you tattling on him? Mm -hmm. Which don't is silence culture, right? It is. And it was, you know, and, and I remember thinking, you know, maybe I didn't explain it well enough. Um, but it was actually more complicated than that, where he, he understood me and he said, no, you know, this has been going on in the family and you just, we don't talk about it. Wow. There's nothing to do. And all of that just, you know, was fuel for me, fuel yeah. for my fire to figure out how to 
break the silence in my family and to do it in a way that would be of use yeah. to the, the victims of trauma, the survivors of the abuse. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, I grew up as well seeing my mother being so afraid of my father. And, um, and she says often that I became the woman I am because she needed me. Um, one thing I never really felt was fear. Mm. And still to this day, I actually never get stage, stage fright. And I don't know what it is because people will, it, you know, journalists will ask me, do you ever get, do you, are you ever afraid of speaking so vulnerably about your truth or your past? And I don't know what it is. I think it's because everything that I do or anytime I speak up for someone, it feels connected to my spiritual calling mm. and service. So for me, service will always override fear. Mm. And so in my childhood, in my home, um, I started speaking up for my mother and challenging my father. And that was my entire teenage years was that. Yeah. And um, I advocated for their divorce and my mother was finally able to leave him. Wow. And I was temporarily disowned uh, for bringing that divorce to fruition. Uh, I was disowned by my father uh, for a, a little period of time while I was in college. And it was because I failed, in his eyes I failed as a daughter, yeah. because I failed to protect the sanctity of their vows by speaking up for my mother mm. instead and saying that she deserved to live beyond his walls. And so did he. Um, he was caught in a, in a kind of role that I think many of our men are conditioned to honor, which is to be a man is to be domineering. And that was the model he had been shown by Bangladeshi culture. And it is true that it is only after they were able to split and get divorced, that he's been able to layer on other parts of his personality, such as kindness, softness. Uh, tragedy will definitely soften a person, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah, and, oh, there's just so much. Right. <laughs> I, mean, I should let you ask questions. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's good. Yeah. I, was just, I was thinking as you were talking about how, um, you know, silence culture, obviously comes from these these power structures, right? These authoritarian figures in our lives, be they a parent, be they a pastor, be they a teacher, be they an institution, right? And I think what's important to remember is that they, they exist because silence culture tacitly acknowledges that even talking about reality is disruptive. Mm -hmm. Even talking about the truth, doing nothing but actually just talking about it has a disruptive and powerful effect. And I say that because I think, you know, quite often we ask ourselves, what can I do to change my situation? What can I do to change the political and social situations right. that I find myself in? Quite often just talking about the, the taboo topics, just raising the issues and talking about them can have a very powerful, far-reaching effect. And that's something we all can do mm -hmm. is talk. Absolutely, because it pierces through to, when we speak our truth, it pierces through the, um, that veil of shame that I think so many of us carry for so long, yeah. thinking, oh, I was at fault at some, for some reason. Um, and, and also it's, um, you know, because I, I was never uh, you know, debilitatingly afraid of my father, I was able to study exactly that, which is understanding that when I speak, and this is also how I understand when 
if, whenever I get criticism, and it's very rare, but whenever it is, it's, it's like, well, I don't mean it in that way, but yeah. like, it's because like, I've threatened someone. I'm with you, yeah. Uh, like there, it's always fear. Everything is love and fear, right? And when someone gets angry, it's usually because I have threatened yeah. the, the very um, fabric of what they live under. Yep. I've threatened their stakehold in power. And, um, or authority, I should say, you know? Um, yeah. And that's definitely what I went through in my, in my first marriage, was understanding, you know, bullies are governed by insecurity. And to speak is to threaten that and to shine a light on it. Does anybody here have something they want to say about silence culture, maybe their experience with it, or have a question for Rima about that? Yeah. Andrew and then Lakin. Um, I guess this is this might be a slight tangent off of that direct thing, but I, I've had this uh, question since I saw a. You've spoke. I think you've implied some of the answer to this throughout what I've heard you say today. Mm -hmm. But um, I saw. I, I think on the blurb when I saw that you were speaking today, mm -hmm. it talked about how you uh, spoke about issues such as relating to toxic masculinity and toxic femininity. And I think I hear a lot about toxic masculinity and I, th I think, I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of it, right. but I'd maybe like to know maybe how you define that and how, and also define toxic femininity and how the two interplay off of each other a little bit. Yeah, that's a, thank you. That's a wonderful question. Uh, I believe any kind of, uh, like toxic masculinity and toxic femininity are both um, ways we objectify ourselves. And objectification is any time we limit a human being's full spectrum of possible traits to have. So toxic masculinity, which we're mo most of us are familiar with, it's when it, it's that subset of beliefs that say men have to adhere to this very strict list of characteristics and to stray otherwise would be unmanly, you know, cannot show emotion, um, tough, uh, aggressive, even all of those. And, if, and it wounds men to begin with and then anybody else in, in contact with that person. And then with toxic femininity, I think it's when we reduce women to being, again, a very a narrow list of qualities, uh, docile, subservient, uh, less than in intelligence, less than in wisdom uh, to, to men. Um, and we see so many, you know, especially young girls being so impressionable and falling into that, that loop of behaving in that really narrow subset of qualities, thinking this is how I can be the ideal girl or the perfect woman is to giggle on cue, um, look a specific way, um, and speak and behave in honor of being docile, polite, and pleasing. Yeah, Lakin. I think toxic masculinity uh, forces men to be aggressive versus truly strong and vulnerable, and you know, strength comes from such vulner from vulnerability, and then. Toxic femininity forces women into being perfect and pleasing versus wholehearted creatures. Hi. Um, yeah, so kind of going back to what you were talking about um, and what Erin had just mentioned about 
um, <clears throat> a lot of times when you're disrupting disrupting that um, silence culture. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, if you're talking about, um, if you bring up racism, you know, somebody says you're racist. Right. Or if you bring up sexism, somebody says you're sexist. And usually it's because they don't understand the paradigm of power. It's like you can't be that to the person who's up in power, but that's another subject. Anyways, my question is um, for you personally, how do you, how do you personally respond to those kind of uh, comments and arguments when people make them to you? And the other, I guess the B of that question would be, uh, how do they typically respond? So how do people typically respond to my work? Or how, do, how do people respond to like when, when you call it out and you say, well, that's because of fear, that's because of anger, like those things that you're talking about, do they have a response to that? And what do you respond to them when they uh, right. when um, they call those things out. I'm going through a wonderful honeymoon period in my career right now. So people have been very lovely. But again, it's like a tiny bit of my life. Because um, <laughs> it's just, the book came out in February. And, um, but I, I understand what, I, I think I hear, in my personal life, you mean in a way. It's like, before I became famous, and then people started liking me, the story beneath the story leading up to this point, yeah. Um, you know, that I, I've heard, and this is all like from family members mostly, you know, family members or partners that, who am I to say anything? I'm, I was, you know, just a pretty face for a long time to a lot of people in my life. Because uh, my, my job, my day job was being an actor and a model. So um, any kind of minimizing language, I would, that's the kind of feedback I would hear. Um, and it's interesting when you start, and it's, it's interesting how people value status. Um, we've all been conditioned to value status, right? Even if it's unconsciously. So like the moment I became a published author, the same things that I've been saying for decades, suddenly everyone's like, oh my gosh, it is love and fear. <laughs> Now that you're like, published. Now that I'm a published author. And previously be like, oh, what do you know? You're just a pretty face. So uh, my, you know, the, the, like my takeaway from my life has been just to speak to those who are willing to hear and willing to grow. And everyone else, they're not my problem. I don't spend energy trying to reform or, um, uh, and I learned this in college. I made a vow um, with myself that if I really wanted my career to mean something as an ambassador of love in this world, I had to be more disciplined with who I was giving my daily energy to. Because there are just some people who cannot, uh, who are unwilling to listen to a scholarly or spiritual debate or conversation. And you just have to be very mindful of like, how am I gonna use my 24 hours a day? And so all of the naysayers, that fire just fueled my writing practice. And I'm a very like, efficient writer because of that. Because um, you get to understand after a while, like your, your intuition gets more sensitive. And you can see like, oh, this is a crowd of people that we can actually have a conversation versus another audience of one or two. And you're like, well, you know, I'm not going to bring this up. 
And you know, one of the things I think, and I guess I want your response to this, that can happen in my experience, and I'm wondering if this is yours as well, when we talk about issues like race or sexism or religious intolerance, sometimes um, those who wish to silence us will say, you're engaging in reverse racism by making everything about racism. You're engaging in sexism right. by telling me that there's such a thing as toxic masculinity. How dare you mention white privilege when white privilege doesn't exist? You're making this an issue. Why don't you just shut up? You're the one causing all the trouble. Right. That's silence culture, right? And that that's is. how, unfortunately, I mean, in my experience, that's, um, th th that's been a tactic to silence any kind of criticism. Has that been your experience as well? I've watched it happen for sure. Um, and it's a, like, any, I feel like reverse racism isn't even, it's not even uh, really a term. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, honey, <laughs> yeah. do you even know what racism yeah. is then? Like, racism, oh, and then, uh, and you see it happen on social media, and so many of my friends, they'll be like, oh, this person went wild on me, and now I want to spend three hours of my life doing this. I'm like, honey, just just use it and write about it, get published, and, <laughs> you know, and like, it's just a good don't anecdote leave at this it, point. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. like, there's some people who are unwilling to grow, and growth for all of us begins with radical self-accountability. And if a person is unable to do that for whatever reasons, and I have a tremendous amount of compassion for people who are not yet ready to look at themselves, it's probably connected to their trauma, you know? So if someone is violently unwilling to let you have, you know, 50% of a conversation, it's probably because they were silenced for something as a child, and it's a raw, open, Gash, gashing wound that they're living from. Um, and so one of the tips I give to my friends and colleagues is identify if that person is living from a scar space or a wound space. Those are your people, right? We can't live everyone's story for them and we can't live everyone's journey of healing for them. And I went through that for a long time, trying to get all of my relatives to like go on this journey with me and then realizing, you know what? everyone, I can't accelerate their process. And um, when someone has allowed their wound to scar over and they're ready for a conversation without attacking from that pain, that's when you can have uh, a rapport. Awesome, yes, and you had a question or a comment. Well, um, thank you, hi. Hi, Marie Francoise. Oh, you recognize me, okay. Yes. Yeah. We're you? meeting in person for the first time. Yes, I've been following your journey and um, it's been very touching the, you. how you've been able to find your voice and um, express it in such a beautiful way, but also authentic and healing for yourself Thank and for you. other people. Um, some of the questions have been answered, like I was wondering how you deal with people trying to shut you down, and you've already answered. You just don't deal with them, kind of. Right. <laughs> you just don't deal with them. That's, that's a good one. Um, but with all the experiences and the trauma that you had from mm -hmm. childhood, which unfortunately I can relate to, it's like belonging to a club, yeah. a big club that nobody wants to belong to, so everybody's quiet about their membership. Yes. <laughs> so, but we're all there, we paid <laughs> involuntarily to be in this club, right? Right. How did you manage to 
because I think like women or anybody has gone through trauma when you're an adult and it's not necessarily happening in front of you anymore, but now it's all internalized and the voices are inside you. Mm. You really can't get away from them, right? How did you manage to, um, I don't know, what did you do with those? Were you able to just write alongside those voices? Were you able to get rid of them? Were you able to, I don't know, make them your friend? Right. I, I, I don't know. what because I find that that's where I am now with those, both voices are so loud and I'm, I can't mm. do anything. Like the voice of love and the voice of pain or the voice of shame? Yeah, because okay. you know, it doesn't sound right. like me. Sometimes it sounds like, like me. Like the internalized yeah. voice of unkindness yeah. from others. Yeah. And then you're your Now it sounds wiser. like me. Now it sounds like me. Yes, so it's harder to ignore. When it sounds yeah. like other people, right. you're like, oh, that's not me. I know that's not, that's yeah. blah, blah, blah. But, it gets but when really it sounds smart. like me, yeah, it gets, it gets quick. It gets, it gets, oh, I know what to do now. I need to yeah. sound like her. So now I it know. sounds like something you should follow. Right. So then it gets confusing and then I end up not writing. Right. Have you read I Am Yours by Chance? Not yet. Okay. I've been a little nervous. Then you would answer, you'd know the answer to this question. I okay. don't mean it in that way, but like, because uh, we're also, um, yeah. because I go through the process of how I, um, I don't think it's about rejecting the voice, it's about aligning, aligning the two voices, because I believe that our voice of pain is the inner lonely child that was wounded, who then starts very strategically speaking as an adult self, like the, as we grow up, um, the way, so, um, and this is actually connected to also your earlier question of like the things people will say. So I'll, I'll start with saying um, any kind of criticism or naysayer or um, cruelty, what I've realized is that person is saying that thing because it's connected to the story that they are gripping on for whole, for dear life. And our presence threatens the fabric of that story that they have to hold on to, that they have decided is their truth. And, um, and I do believe all of us are entitled to our own truth, right? And I cannot rip someone else's truth from their hands. So then, okay, then we come to our spliced uh, voices in our heads, right? And the way I, I see the... Um, the internalized unkindness becomes basically the voice of our inner wounded child. And then the way we align those two voices or make peace with those two voices, because the other voice is the voice of our higher self, our, our wiser self, who knows right and wrong, who knows kindness from unkindness. And then they're at friction inside. And um, I believe it's with a lot of uh, grace and empathy, self-empathy, that we align those two voices and we realize that you know, they're both parts of us. So instead of rejecting one and thinking by the rejection of the inner wounded child, we're not ever going, rejecting that child self actually creates more pain. So it's about saying, you know, I hear you, you went through a lot. I will take care of you now. Um, and that's, yeah, that's how, how I was able to make peace with, um, so it became no longer a spliced sense of self, but just a, an aligned sense of self and saying, I am, I will now parent you. You know, kind of, I hear you saying, learning to have compassion with our former selves as, mm -hmm. as broken or messed up as we were, you know, 
it can help us have compassion for others, even if they are incredibly offensive and, and hateful. Like right. we can kind of almost see ourselves in them. And, and yeah, I don't know. Well, that's kind I of feel like, you know, and, and all hum um, the reason, so I Am Yours begins in a child voice and different from flashback, because a lot of memoirs will use flashback, but I Am Yours actually starts in the first person child voice. And I did that specifically to kind of signal to all readers, we all begin as children, and then we become the result of the pain or the love that is modeled to us. And it is through that journey that we start to um, develop a really unkind way of talking to ourselves mm. or a loving way to talk to ourselves. And also by understanding that we all come from this place, this childlike place, and then we just become what we are taught or we decide to hold on to as our education. Again, yes, it, it gives us an entryway into forgiveness and compassion toward those who grew up to be our bullies. You know, they, they grew up, they were taught that as well. And that for me is always, um, that's opportunity for forgiveness right there and reason enough that I need. So you talk about how our culture has normalized toxic behavior. I heard you talk about that. Yes. Um, our culture has normalized toxic behavior. What do you mean by that? Well, someone's always profiting from any kind of oppression. I mean, economically. Someone's always profiting from the oppression of another group. So that's why it's normalized by the people who are profiting. And um, it's by talking about it that we start to dismantle it. But then our work is, of course, like once we dismantle old structures and to create something new, and you have done that. This is, this is that, you know? Um, from the dismantling, from the wreckage comes beauty. Yeah, I think about our political arena right now and right. how toxic behavior has been normalized, I think, in a way as never before right. as a result of a particular elected official. <laughs> um, that, that that kind of, you know, bullying, language, right. hateful, kind of dog whistle, racism, sexism, you know, um, I, I feel like that has been normalized as never before. Right. Do, you, do you see that? Do you Absolutely. Yeah. It's been um, brought to the forefront much more um, in an, you know, like an arrogant, um, smug way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's and, and, his showmanship. That's also the campaign he ran. It's why he attracted and continues to attract so many followers. He, he you know, it's... There are some marketing geniuses behind there. Yeah. Because he taps into a kind of... Um, Toxic masculinity, right? Very much so, but also in this like very camp-like way, you know, um, that I think a, a lot of his, a lot of his um, community of followers, they know that same father figure. Yeah. Um, and it feels... You know, so I'm a social scientist. Familiar. I, I look at patterns and why pattern, how patterns result in economics. My father's an economist, by the way. So it's like that's like part of my brain is always going to track how bullies come to be and who's profiting from it. And um, there's always marketing, and you know where there's a supply, there is a demand, and when there's demand, there is a supply. And he understands all of that, and he uses all of this 
terrible violence to stay on the airwaves and being in the forefront of media, you know, leads to numbers. All of that, it's, it's a show. It's a show with incredibly terrible, tangible results. Amen to that, yeah. Um, I wanna open it up now for uh, basic Q&A and Carrie, I just saw your hand. I'm wondering how you were able, or if you did, continue to manage your relationships with your family, like your father and your cousin, if you did or didn't. I mm -hmm. find that um, some of us cut family off and some of right. us continue, well, try to forgive and continue a relationship. And if you did that, how did you do it? And if you cut it off, how did you do that? And how have you managed that? Thank you, that's a wonderful question. Um, I love coming to a completely new community too because then it's like, let's get to the bottom of everything. Um, so for a long time, uh, the way I handled everything was by not talking to anyone and not allowing them to participate in any part of my life. Um, but, and I ended up being severely anorexic and I ended up finding myself in one abusive relationship after another. Um, and just keeping all of that hidden from my mother, my father, my siblings, to the best that I could hide it. And I realized that's, actually, that's not a sustainable way to live. I was going to end up killing myself. You know, anorexia is a slow demise. Um, and all of that came to a hilt in that uh, marriage in my 20s. And uh, so I realized, okay, silence is not something I can participate in, you know. Um, so there has to be something else. And I started telling my family one by one that, you know, if you want to be in my life, you have to be willing to see the truth of me to some degree. And I've seen what happens to me if I try to hide it, which is anorexia, and it's not, that's not an okay um, choice for me anymore and this like moment came when I was 30 when I started telling everyone okay you can either start talking to me and getting to know the things I was told to keep quiet or like in order to keep myself alive like I have to make distance from you guys so I was just playing this like perfect pleasing daughter role for everyone uh, and you know Brene Brown says there's like when you live in hiding there's no capacity for intimacy, because intimacy can only come through connection and vulnerability. And, um, and my mom was in a place in her life where she was so able to receive that and hear that. And initially, um, and, and she, I told her that I wanted to write this book that would give voice to so many of the things, to everything. And she was terrified. And she was like, well, what if people hurt you, and I'm like, mom, people have already hurt me. Like, but by speaking, at least I will stop hurting myself. You know, um, and it's, there's someone else out there who needs this book. And I asked her and my stepdad if I could live with them for a year to write this book. And through writing it, I started gaining the courage to start putting down healthy boundaries with the rest of the relatives in my life. Um, and I told my father that um, I love you and I want to have a relationship with you, but I am also putting up a boundary that 
the kind of relationship I'm, I'm interested in does not hold an, AO, an aota of manipulation or unkindness. And if you are ready to have that kind of relationship, I'm here. And if you're not, then I have to let you go in order to keep myself alive. And he had, you know, enough decades had passed, and I think he also heard in my voice that now that I was an adult woman, I no longer needed his approval to live. So the power dynamic had shifted. Because when you're a child, you need your parents for food, for education, for shelter. You know, you can't own your power, you can't step into power as a child. But I was a 30-year-old woman and I didn't need him anymore. And he heard that in my voice and he said, oh, well, I'm willing to do this new kind of relationship. And he stepped up and there was a lot of back and forth and I would have to just parent the relationship for us and say, hold on, you know, uh-uh, I said no, unkind no unkindness. And, um, and then he would remember. And that's been our last five years. He, um, he, got, uh, he got tired of his, the story he was holding on to, I think. He was ready. And, uh, but it's, it's never seamless. Like, um, and that's why I use the word parenting and how so much of forgiveness is like stepping into the role of forgiving my parents required a lot of watching them as though I was their parent and to understand why would you ever silence a child and um, I realized, well, because the same things must have happened to them. Uh, and writing showed me that, because actually, when I first sat down to write this book, and I was like, how in, like, how am I supposed to get to forgiveness, you know? And I made a list of all the reasons that a parent would look away from a child's plea for protection. And, um, you know, they don't love me which was my story for a long time. Uh, number two, they are unkind people. Number three, they're uneducated people and they don't know what abuse or molestation means. Number four, all, and I made this entire list. And I you know, took my manuscript and I held it up against this list and I said, you know, okay, that's a falsehood made by fear. They do love me. Number two, they are educated. Number three, they, don't, they do know what it means. And then finally on the list, the one thing, the one possibility left was it happened to them. And I was like, okay. And I became their parent. Thank you. We have time, I think, for just one more question, a quick, quick question. Yeah, Bryn. Um, so I think something that gets talked a little bit about, but like is missing from a lot of conversations is how um, underserved men are by right. patriarchal thought as exactly. well. And I think that um, especially, I mean, with this whole week and the conversations surrounding abortion laws, mm -hmm. um, I think it's easy for me and a lot of women um, especially for me as a rape survivor and someone who's had an abortion before. Um, it's really easy to not save any room for men in our feminism. And I am just wondering what that looks like for you and how to um, 
kind of draw boundaries around um, opinions right. and like where to find valuable opinions and save space for all of those opinions, but also, you know, maintain your personal safety and, you know what I'm saying? Right, absolutely. Well, I think, cool. um, and that's a wonderful question and thank you for sharing. Um, I'm a survivor of rape and assault as well. And the way I see it is, um, it's not a gender issue or a sexuality issue. It's, it's always about power. And it's a human issue for us to protect each other and protect each other's bodies and to hold space for each other's stories. And we do such a disservice when we say th this is um, only a feminist conversation or this is only about women, whatever it may be. Because it's not, it's always a human conversation and it's about human issues. Uh, and I remember when um, I was raped when I was 23 and like the the biggest part of um, that that experience was the the the, re the thing that really stayed with me was how does a person become a rapist, and maybe that was a way of my brain trying to deal with the experience. I always I'm a you know we're body mind spirit and I am really safe in my mind. I love. I go there and, you know, instead of like feeling pain, I'll be like, let me research pain. And so I became obsessed with how does a person become a rapist? Because it was also my way to like forgive that this had happened, was to understand. And 33% of convicted rapists will say that they once went through it as a child. And so yes, it's a conversation that can, we cannot forget men in any conversation that has to do with women because we're all human beings suffering from the same subset of wounds. And if we don't trace it back to the core wound to take care of that core wound, we only replicate trauma. You know, whether it's like then this young boy who was traumatized and grows up into a bully in his marriage, well, it's because we forgot about him as a child. You know, so society saying, oh, it's only about this thing. It's like, it's not, it, there's, there's all, we have to think about it as holistic healing and holistic uh, progress. Otherwise there is no progress, right? Um, and one of my favorite things about the book is, so it's been adopted into high school curricula where, you know, teen boys are reading it. And I, I love hearing from them, oh, this book is, has helped me I know I'm going to become. I'm, I know I'm going to be a better partner and a father because of this book, and a better ally for women. And it also helped me develop a self-esteem that I didn't realize I needed to develop. And that's the most exciting thing for me, because I think everything is traced back to the self-esteem we're able to um, develop in our children or not. Like every ailment in the world can be traced back to somebody feeling unloved, right? That's how bullies are raised. And um, yeah, and I'm such a huge believer in keeping this conversation um, genderless, right? And open for everyone because otherwise we cannot heal and evolve. And that's why I'm yours. I speak directly to the reader as though you're my imaginary best friend from childhood whom I never released 
and I call you my love. Like that's, it's a genderless name, you know? And because I think it is by calling each other and treating each other as though we're, we're each other's love or imaginary best friend, that's how we can find healing and solidarity as a community and rise. I appreciate so much the amount of grace and compassion you express in, in what you just said. Um, as, a, as a rape survivor and a trauma survivor, um, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that kind of grace. And, but I just want to let you know and maybe express for others here just how much that means. And I just wanted to kind of just Thank you. put that in bold to end this conversation. <laughs> compassion and grace, compassion and grace. I, amazing grace, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, well, I feel like um, grace and forgiveness, it's, it's all, um, it's self-authored freedom, right? It's like self-authored freedom and healthy detachment. But it's not cheap grace it's because you're cheap. calling people and the abusers and the bullies to account and yes. you're holding people like your father accountable and you're creating boundaries to keep yourself right. safe but also to show the, uh, the abusers that they have to change and that right. they need to confront their own trauma, their own yeah. past. It's so complicated and it's, it's so dynamic but it's so full of grace. And I just thank you so much thank for your you voice. So much. Thank you so much for being here. The book is I Am Yours. Uh, pick it up, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. Everywhere, yeah. Oh, everywhere, wherever I guess, you, very cool. Wherever you enjoy buying your books, your independent <laughs> bookstore, you know, Amazon. I, um, it's also on Audible. I was, okay. I, I narrated the, the audio book. You narrated it, oh, awesome. Thank very you. cool. Thank you so much for being here on such short notice as well. It's back to Oregon tomorrow for you, right? It is, for yeah. a brief spell, and then to New York. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. Can you hang yeah. out just for a minute? And Absolutely. if somebody wants to come forward and talk with you, is that I cool? Would for love a few? That. Very cool. Thank you so much for being here. It's 1138. We went over a little bit. Thank you so much for being here. Thank Go you. Go in peace. Go in grace.